Alrighty, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 15, Romans chapter 15, and we're going to start with verse 14. Romans chapter 15, verse 14. Um, you know, I'm, I'm excited um, to be finishing the letter uh, that Paul wrote to the Romans, and one small reason I'm excited is because, and, and, and I was reminded of this, and I kind of had forgot it, obviously, at the time, um, and we said this at the beginning of the study, but we hadn't said it in quite some time. I started Romans right after I got to this church, so years and years ago I started Romans, and um, we went all the way through chapter 8, and then we said we was going to take a break and go do something else. Well, in 2022, or I don't remember when we started Romans this time, but we, we picked back up, but we started over. So this time we're finishing the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans, and so I'm very excited about that. Admittedly, it was a marathon and not a sprint, um, but I did still try to go quick enough that we could get the overall picture, um, and as we have spent some time, we've looked deeply in the words um, that, 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 that are here. Um, they are the words of God. Uh, and I think we've learned a little bit about the message and the messenger. You know, Paul was definitely teaching the Romans the gospel and what comes after the gospel. Uh, but at the same time, not only do we learn about the gospel, but we also learned a little bit about Paul and who he is and what his life was like. So the message is that without Jesus, we are utterly hopeless. There was no way for us to be saved, but once we believe in him, once we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are saved for all eternity. <coughs> he goes on to talk about the new life that we live. This new life is a life of holiness. It's a life of victory, and it's a life of harmony that we live with other believers. Um, we can say, uh, I think it's pretty clear that we can say that this messenger has been fully dedicated to delivering this message um, that, that he's sharing throughout his whole life. We've seen enough already about the life of Paul, and we're going to see a little bit more here. Um, even as Paul's finishing this letter, the tone is he's looking forward to what he can do next. So he has a, a mission that he has to do, and then he has a whole other plan for the rest of his days to go somewhere else and continue to share the gospel. So that is a beautiful thing. And so as Paul's actually saying farewell to the Romans in this letter, his mind is on all the ways that God will continue his ministry among the Gentiles. And so that's what we'll be seeing here um, as we go forward. Now, chapter 16 has a bunch of names in it. And um, if, if y'all have heard me preach ever before, you know that I can't say names. Um, so we may name some of these people something else. Um, they may have never been called what I call them today, but it is in all love that I attempt to say their names. Um, so the sermon in a sentence is this. We all have a unique calling from the Lord, and he gives us a heart to fulfill that calling. Um, that's something that kind of has to be a basis for us. That has to be like a bias that we start this conversation with, that God has a purpose for each and every one of us. You know, you hear stories that, that people talk about that they had these near-death experiences, and, they, and, and then somebody inevitably is going to say, well, God wasn't finished with you. God's not finished with any of us. God has a purpose for each and every one of us. 
He has selected you, and without your knowing, He has trained you and gifted you for whatever that calling is. Now, the scope of Paul's calling was to spread the gospel across the entire Mediterranean world before they invented the combustion engine. So that's a pretty impressive calling that he had. But we have to recognize that what God is calling us to do, while it may not have the same scope, it has the same importance. If God is calling you to a ministry that leads one person to salvation, you have changed their life for all eternity. We've got to be faithful to the calling that God gives us. And God is going to put that heart inside of you, that drive and that desire to do what he's called you to do. That It, it is supernatural, it's not natural, but it is something that he puts in all of us. Once he puts a calling in us, we, we have to do what he calls us to do. In another place, Jeremiah says that the word of God was like fire shut up in his bones. He had to let it out. He had to tell people what the word of God is. And that is something we have to recognize is that when God gives us that calling, that drive is going to be there. If he has called us to do something and we're not doing it, we will not be happy. We will not have joy. We will not be fulfilled. All the good things about living life with the Lord come when we are in the center of his will. And so Paul's going to help us see a little bit about his life and his ministry. He's also going to show us a little bit more about the church as we go forward. So I'm going to pick up with verse 14, um, and then it'll be all of chapter 15 and all of chapter 16 from that point. So Romans chapter 15, verse 14. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some things I have written to you very boldly, by way of reminder, because of the grace given to me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offerings of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit." In Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. To bring the Gentiles to obedience, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illichrim, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ." And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing, as I go to Spain to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have um, been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it. And indeed, they owe it to them, for if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of blessing of Christ. 
I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers on, to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincheri. I promise we went through a whole thing. Sincheri, something like that. Um, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. <coughs> Greet my beloved Eponetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary. I love Mary. Her name's so easy to say. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are all, or they are well known to the apostles and were in Christ before me. Greet Ampelatus, my brother in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stacy. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsmen, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissist. That's not how you say that either. <clears throat> Greet those workers in the Lord, TNT. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet all these folks in verse 14 who are with them. Greet uh, Philologus, Julia, Neris, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine which you have been taught. Avoid them, and uh, avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but rather their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. But your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The Lord of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my uh, kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. I'll explain that. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quarterus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings that has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith 
to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay. All right. So we're going to break this down into two parts, and we won't say very many of those names ever again. Uh, but we're going to start by looking at Paul's calling. What is he, what is he called to do? Um, so as we begin this study today, we, we see that, that, that Paul's finished this letter and he's ready to say farewell. Um, and, and he's made this powerful case for the justification by faith. Uh, he's also set forth the lives that Christians are to live after their saving encounter with Jesus. Um, and, and so we get into his calling because he says, I've boldly talked to you about some of these things. He's boldly talked to you about some of these things. What does it mean to boldly say those things? Well, depending on how you translate, that could mean I went really far with it, or it can mean that I said it without any fear of what other people's opinions might be. And that's probably Paul, um, that, that he didn't really care how people were going to receive it, that he just boldly proclaimed about as abstaining from sin, Christian unity, um, you know, and, and, and by reading that, you may think that Paul has some concerns about the faith or the righteousness or the unity of the church at Rome, but he actually makes that plain. Look at what he says in verse 14. I myself am, am satisfied about you, convinced is another word you could use there, uh, my brothers, uh, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. So he says in this conclusion that he does believe that they are believers. He does believe that they abstain from sin. He does believe that they're unified. But he has laid this down boldly so that they can know. So with any Christian, those of us that are already saved, we don't mind hearing the gospel. We don't mind hearing about righteousness. We don't mind hearing about unity because who knows, we might hear something that we've never heard before. Um, we may be encouraged we may, you know, have, a, have an inspiration to go out and share with somebody else. We don't mind hearing the gospel. And so that's basically what Paul's saying is, I've proclaimed it to you boldly, but I know that you are believers. I know that you have the faith. And so this thing was really written, this letter was written as a reminder to them more than anything else. Um, then he says that it's by God's grace. So if, if you look at verse 15, it says, but some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace God has given to me. So it's by God's grace that he is a minister of the gospel to the Gentiles. Now I want you to know that when he says the gospel of God, that means it's the gospel that originates with God. So the gospel isn't about God. The gospel literally came, came down from God to mankind, and that's the ministry that he's sharing. And so when people disagree about the gospel or they argue about the gospel, that doesn't make biblical sense because God delivered to us the gospel. He brought it to us. It's not something that we decide. It's not even something that we interpret. It is something that he has given to us. And Paul was a faithful minister of that very gospel. He takes his calling very seriously. Now, Paul was a Jew, and he never renounced his Jewishness. He would have probably kept up with the festivals, and he probably would have done many of the things that any Jew would do. We've read here, we understand that he's convinced that all meats are clean. <coughs> would he have eaten some of the meats that maybe previously Jews wouldn't have eaten? In a social setting, probably. But if he had his own choice, maybe not. Maybe he would have kept to those things. He never renounced his Jewishness, but... 
he was always focused on his Gentile ministry. That's where God had called him. That's where God had equipped him. And so that's what he was going to do. So it wasn't just anybody that could have wrote a letter like this to the Romans. It would have had to be someone that was uniquely gifted by God. So this is part of God's ministry in the life of Paul. See, Paul was given the authority to carry out his calling. So we have to understand that for, for just a moment, that, that Paul was doing something that he was supposed to do, something that he had been called to do. Does that mean that everybody should do the same thing as Paul? No. That just means that that's his calling, and he poured his whole life into it. And the, the thing that we're supposed to understand is that when God sets us on a path, he's going to gift us. And, and like I said earlier, he's already been training you for whatever it is that he's calling you to do, but he is also going to grant you the authority to do it. So you may be feeling God calling you to say, you know what, I want to step up and I want to do this in the church. But then the enemy is going to say, who are you to think that you can do this in the church? Just like God gave Paul the authority to do what he did, because probably somebody would have asked, well, who is this guy that thinks he can write to us about the gospel? Well, God gave him that authority. So when God calls you to do something, not only are you going to have all the talents and skills and gifts and everything that you need to get it done, he's also going to grant you the authority to go ahead and do that. And that authority will be recognized in the church. God will grant you everything, including the authority that you need to do your calling. He will give that to you. And again, it won't be because of who you are, just like it wasn't because of who Paul was or it hasn't been because of who we are. It is who God is. God says, this one is the one I've chosen for this ministry, and we as the church recognize that and submit to God's authority. That's how that goes. Now, Paul does use very unique imagery here, something that you don't really see in the New Testament in any other place. But in verse 16, he says, uh, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So there he is taking on the role of a priest. Now, we know that the priests were the ones in the Old Testament that made the sacrifices. So the animals would be brought to the priest, or the, whatever the offering was, wasn't always animals, but the offering would be brought to the priest, and he would pray a blessing over it, and then he would offer it to God, whether that was an animal, or, or whether that was bread, or, or grain, or whatever it might have been, it was offered to God. When God accepts that offering, it then becomes holy. It is sanctified because God has accepted it. And so now he's used that same terminology for the Gentile church. He, as the priest, has prepared this offering by proclaiming the gospel and discipling these people. And now he is offering it to God. And he says that God has now accepted it. So the church has become holy. It's been sanctified or cleansed by the Holy Spirit. So the church has become an offering to God. One really interesting thing about offering is that once you give it to God, it is His forever. So we, as believers, have been given to God and we are His forever. Meaning that we don't get to take our lives back and live them any way that we want. Also, it means that no one else can command us to live in a way that is contrary to God. 
whether that be through social pressure or government pressure or even physical force. They can't do that. They don't have the authority to do that. So we have to recognize that we belong to God. Nothing can waver about that. We are His. We have been given to Him as an offering. He has accepted us and He has declared us to be holy. So, apart from Paul's efforts in the first century, there wouldn't have been much of a Gentile church. Now, that's probably not totally accurate. God would have called somebody else. But we can look at what Paul did, and he was the agent for sharing the gospel to the Gentiles. It was his work. And I would say it's certainly something of a miracle that the gospel of God spread so quickly across the Mediterranean. People did travel, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, but people did travel in the first century, but the expanse of just real estate that Paul would have covered was just astronomical at that time. The fact that he survived <coughs> all of that travel, you've got to think, and I made a joke that they hadn't even invented the combustion engine. You know one thing they certainly hadn't discovered by that point? Antibiotics. Think about that. He was going all these different places, how many times he would have gotten sick. Most likely, he got an infection in his eye on his very first missionary journey. He either lost the eye or could not really see very well afterwards. He went through things that you just wouldn't even, we wouldn't even count today because we don't face the same kinds of problems. He was scourged by the Romans. This is a, this is a whipping. And it's not a whipping where you just get up and walk away. He would have been beaten. The same sort of thing they did to Jesus. And again, without any antibiotics, the threat of infection was very real. There were so many things that happened in this man's life, but God divinely protected him and enabled him to do what he needed to do. And there are so many reasons why Paul would have just said, you know what, I've done enough, I'm tired, I'm hurt, I'm sick, and I'm going to stop. But he didn't. He continued to serve. That helps us to understand this calling and how powerful it is. You know, it's understandable that Paul would have great pride in what happened, but he walks that line between having pride in what happened and pride in what he did. Because he doesn't have pride, or he doesn't claim to have pride in what he did. His pride is focused on God. His pride is focused on what God has done. So it's not his clever words, it's the Word of God. It's not his mighty deeds, it's the deeds that God did through him. It's, it's, it's not His wonders and miracles and signs, but it is the wonders and miracles of si and signs of God. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that has made the Gentile church, and so He's giving the, the glory to the Holy Spirit. And this is, this is a thing that we must remember. So, so I'm telling you that we're called to do something. I promise you, each and every one of you are called to do something. I'm telling you that God will grant you success in that if we are faithful and do what God's called us to do. But I will also warn you, when we are successful in ministry, Jesus must receive all of the glory. That's important because it is Him. It is all about what He does. Now, it's a different passage that, that, that I preach on occasionally um, in Matthew chapter 5 where um, Jesus basically tells the disciples to do your good works before men in such a way that, 
that they will see your good works and glorify your Father that's in heaven. And usually I make some joke about, you know, I, I preach a sermon, then I go to the back, and when people go by, everybody says, good job, Adam, or good job, a good sermon, or, or what have you. And, and one of the first times I preached that, I made that abundantly clear that it's God that does these things, and somebody came and told me, good job, and I felt like, oh, well, I guess I didn't say that very clearly. Um, but the point is, it's not so much other people's reaction and other people's response. It is our heart. Who do you ascribe the glory to? Who are you looking to? Is it your success? If it is, ultimately it will pass away. Is it God's success? Is it God's victory? Is it God's glory? If it is, that's the way to do it. It's that heart. It is that, that is what must drive us, and that is certainly what was driving Paul. So even though God receives the glory, Paul is willing um, to do work spreading the gospel anywhere that it has not been proclaimed. Now, some people do have trouble with this passage. He says, I don't want to build on somebody else's foundation. And, and people say, well, what does that mean? So why, why, why doesn't he want to talk to anybody that's already been evangelized? That's his specific calling. And that's something we have to recognize. There is a difference between an evangelist, a church planter, and a pastor, and all these other offices that we do have. So maybe they weren't specifically spelled out in the Bible, but Paul is demonstrating that he was a planter. That's what he was doing. He was an evangelist and a planter. So he would go to new places where Christ had not been named. That doesn't mean that they had never heard of Jesus. That means that they had never submitted to Jesus. Because Jesus' full name is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If he's not named that way in that city, Paul's going there. And he's going to proclaim Jesus until there are people there that name him for what he truly is. That was Paul's ministry and mission. So... That also doesn't mean that Paul didn't help out established churches. We have just spent a long time studying a letter that would have helped out an established church in Rome. And so Paul definitely helped those things, but his calling was to make new churches of Gentiles. That's what his calling was. And so that's where his effort and his energy went. But anytime that he could help, he did. In fact, as we catch him in this passage, he is actively helping already established Christians, even with what we're looking at here. So his mission was to take an offering. There was an offering that had been collected among the Greeks. So the churches that he had established, and we've got letters to some of them, so this would have been the Philippians, and this would have been the Thessalonians, and this would have been the Corinthians. So these, these churches that, that, that Paul has already established, that he's already preached to, that he's already discipled, they were in better shape financially than the people in Jerusalem. And so he was taking an offering and then bringing it to Jerusalem. These are all established churches, and he's the courier between them. So we have to recognize that Paul did things that were outside of his calling, but his heart, his effort, his ministry, his mission was to Gentiles who had never heard about Jesus. So, so that, was, that was the work that he was doing. So he's simply identifying his mission to, to do what... He needed to do. So he says that he's always wanted to go to Rome. He said that there's been things that's prevented me. He's always wanted to go to Rome because obviously we, we've heard the saying, all roads lead to Rome. If, you want to if you've got this message and you take it to Rome, then it's going to spread everywhere naturally. So he wanted to go to Rome. 
but he had been prevented because everywhere he went, Jesus had not yet been named. And so he continued to travel to places and share the gospel. And, and there's this story in the book of Acts where he's trying to get to Europe, but it wasn't time yet. And there were there was doors closed in different places. And finally, he, he made it into Europe by crossing almost what we would call Constantinople now. He, he, he Well, we don't call it that anymore, Istanbul now. But anyway, so he crossed over in that area. So what we recognize is that he was always pushing further and further away from the epicenter, which is Jerusalem. But everywhere he went, they didn't know Jesus. And so he taught Jesus to him. He proclaimed Jesus. He proclaimed the gospel until they were saved. And so he's been always wanting to go to these places. Meanwhile, he's been spreading the gospel all over that eastern Mediterranean region. And he wants to get to the west. So he says that he's been wanting to do this. Um, but he says that there's no area, there's no work in this region, there's no place in this region that I can work, and so now I'm coming to you. So that's in verse 23. But now since I no longer have any room to work in these regions, and since I have longed for so many years to come to you, that means that he's coming to you. Now, that's, that's his goal, and that's certainly what he wants to do, but Rome has already been evangelized. So why is he coming to Rome? Well, he tells you in the very next verse, I hope to see you in passing, as I go to Spain, now if you can imagine back in geometry class, geography class, when you were a kid and they put all those maps. Now my history teacher made us draw those. Like We had to draw those maps and draw out the little country so we'd remember where that was. I want you to think back all those years ago, however they made you learn it, and think about where Jerusalem is, the epicenter of the gospel. And think about where Spain is. That was his goal. That was his dream. You know why he didn't want to take the gospel to Florida? He didn't know it was there. Spain's out there. There's Portugal, but I'm not, honestly, I'm, not, I'm kind of fuzzy on whether Portugal was a thing back then. That's as far as he knew there was land. So understand that, that his dreams weren't limited to Spain, he was thinking the ends of the earth. When, when Jesus said, go and make disciples to the ends of the earth, he thought he was talking to him. And so he was doing that. He was going all the way to Spain, which they didn't know about stuff further west than that at that time. So that was his target. That was his aim and his goal. Oh, that we would take the Great Commission that seriously. Oh, that we would take the calling that God places on our life that seriously that the only limitation is we're running out of people to talk to. That we're running out of places to go. Oh, that we would take it that seriously. Just imagine a generation of Christians so fired up about the gospel that we went everywhere. We could cover it in a matter of months. Y'all realize that? If we wanted to tell every person, the Christians we have, if every Christian we had on this earth right now would share the gospel with everybody that doesn't know the gospel, we could cover the earth in a matter of months. That is what we could do. But what will we do? That's a question for each of us to decide for ourselves. What will we do? So before Paul goes to Spain, which as far as he was concerned was the furthest landmass to the west that he knew about, before he goes there, he wants to stop over with the Romans. Um, he wants to spend some time. He wants to be encouraged and, and, and lift them up and let them lift him up. And there was this, this kind of thing, and I'm going to Spain and you're going to pay for it. There was a little bit of that in there. If you read between the lines so that you can support me, send me to Spain. So there was a ministry and he was bringing them in on it, which is part of the reason for the letter, but he makes it subtle. But he is, immediately goes into, so let me show you what's already been happening. 
That's when he explains the offering that's already been taken up in Greece and is going to Jerusalem because the saints in Jerusalem need the help. And so this is a great example of Christians helping other Christians, but it also reminds us that God has not forgotten about Israel. That helps us to remember because what he's saying there is that these Gentile Christians have been brought into the spiritual blessings of the Jews. And so they owe these physical blessings to them because of the spiritual blessing they've received. So it does help us to know that, that in, in, in Paul's mind, God had not forgotten the Jews, that they were still the chosen people. But then he moves on from that idea because he begins to think about the danger that he's going to have. He knows that traveling to Judea is going to be dangerous. And so he makes a prayer request. He makes a prayer request starting in verse 30. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. So when we see that, that's his first prayer request. That he can be delivered from that danger that he's about to face. Some say that Paul or any other Christian should go to a place where they're going to face a threat against their lives. Some people would say that. Um, ethics, eth, ethics people and, and such. They say you shouldn't put your life in danger to serve God. That God doesn't ask that of you. That as so long as it's safe, do what God tells you to do. When it comes into physical harm and danger, God's not asking you to do that. Maybe their Bible's missing some pages, but when I read the, the Old and New Testament, I see people in harm's way for God all the time. That seems to be a major theme from Genesis through Revelation, that we're going to serve God and that the good things are to come because this life is going to be full of danger. It's going to have trials and tribulations. We're going to be persecuted, and no matter what they do to us, we always have the hope of Christ Jesus because that is after this life and after this world. That's the way I read it. And that was what Paul was looking at. So you've heard people maybe say before, well, this wasn't the best thing to do, but I had no choice. Well, it wasn't the best thing for Paul to go to Jerusalem, but he had no choice because God had called him to. Now, if you're really up to date on the, the timeline in the book of Acts, you know that, that uh, he did get a, a, a ship to Rome. But by that point, he was a prisoner um, because he had been falsely accused of trying to lead a rebellion, essentially, is what they were saying. And so what we see is that he went into a place knowing that there was danger. There's a really, really beautiful passage in Acts where he stops uh, again by Ephesus and they pray for him. They beg him not to go, but they pray for him and send him on his way. And we have to realize that Christians are going to go into harm's way. That's going to happen sometimes. Some people would go so far as to say that God would never ask us to do anything that might cause us harm or even discomfort. We'll talk about those folks in a minute. I'll give you your next bold statement. The Lord guides the steps of our ministry even if it leads us into danger. Not going to do a whole lot of good if it's always safe. That's just the way of it. So even though Paul's walking into this hostile land, he asked the Romans to pray that he will eventually make it to them so that he can enjoy their company. Um, and the Lord already has Paul looking past the, the business in Jerusalem to the ministry that he is going to have beyond. And so I believe that God's doing that in Paul's heart. And so that brings us to our other bold statement. God will ensure that we are always striving for new work in our ministry. 
He's always got us looking past, because there's going to be some bad parts. He's got us looking past that to what he's going to have next for us. So now let's look at Paul's farewell. This pretty much covers all of chapter 16. Um, and I didn't put a lot of those names back in there. We'll, we'll mention some things, uh, but others we won't. So as we come to the final chapter of the letter, um, I want them to be tempted to kind of scan over the names. Maybe y'all wouldn't, but I'm kind of tempted to scan over the names and, and get to the stuff that has words that I can pronounce. Um, but we should look a little bit about what God's saying. This is part of the letter. It's part of what the Holy Spirit has inspired. Now, we're not going to dive into a study of each person. And in fact, there's very little that can be learned about most of these folks. Um, but I will mention Phoebe, uh, because Phoebe was the person entrusted to carry this letter. Now, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, uh, a servant of the church uh, there. It's a little village in, in Greece, southeast of Corinth. Um, but anyway, you know that word servant is the same word the Bible uses for deacon. Um, some people want to say the word deaconess. Um, that word didn't really come into any kind of vogue until the second century, um, but she was rich. Um, we, we do know that. She was a patron of many different people. Um, she was a servant, a faithful servant in that church, whatever that means and whatever office that would be. But she must have been a pretty significant lady because Paul trusted her to bring this letter and God trusted her to bring this letter to the Romans. So there is some significance there. It's definitely worth looking at. So she might have served in that office uh, of deacon. Now, the scholars debate it, but like I say, she was trusted. So let's look in general terms at the rest of these names. There are 26 names, if you count Phoebe. 26 names. Um, in that, uh, we do know something about Prissa and Aquila. Uh, Luke calls her Priscilla. Paul tends to call her Prissa. We don't really know why. Um, the kids at church probably called her Miss Pris. Uh, but what we do know is that they were very um, involved in ministry. They had lived in Rome. Um, when the Caesar kicked the Jews out of Rome, they felt like they needed to leave too, although their names are not uh, Jewish names. And so when they left, they would have encountered Paul. They were tent makers. Wherever they were, they had a church meeting in their home. That was kind of standard for them. Um, uh, Aquila was a tent maker, like Paul. They were both in the same trade, so they connected. They're apparently known throughout the Gentile church. And so we do know about them. So he says to greet them. So they've obviously made their way back to Rome. Um, he names 26 names. And, and what's interesting <coughs> about this, something that we can point out, is that um, in, this, in this list there are names with uh, Jewish origins, uh, Latin origins, Greek origins. Um, so you would know that that would comprise people of different ethnicity. Uh, it, would, it comprised people of, of, of different social standing, for sure. Um, a Latin name indicates most likely a Roman citizen and possibly even one of some note. Um, the, the Greek names could be nearly anything. We know that Greek, the Greece belonged to um, uh, Rome at that time, but Greece had spread, like the culture of Greece had spread so much under Alexander the Great that they may not have even originally been from Greece, or the people that were named, and then obviously Jewish names. So there's a lot of different backgrounds here. There's a lot of diversity here, but they are working together. Um, and, and, and what we can see from this is that churches simply are better at ministry when they have community. Think about the network there. 
the network of, of, of people that, that had ties into maybe Roman ruling society, the people that might have had ties into to more local, maybe business, because the, the Greeks may not have been, you know, may have been business class, middle class, so they may have had their connections. The Jews would have had connections in the synagogue, so there are many different ways that this would have worked. Church is better when we have true community, when we work with each other, when we join with each other, even if we come from different backgrounds, it is better that way. So after this, Paul does give a warning. He warns about people who are divisive. Now, what does it mean to be divisive? Well, Paul makes it very specific. They are people that are charming. They are, they are people with an easy-to-listen-to voice and message. But they're all about themselves. He points out that these are not servants of Christ. People like that are still here today. Just like they were in Rome, and just like they were in the first century church, they're, they're here today. In fact, um, they're pretty prominent. So people telling us to accept the ways of the world, that's divisive. You see, here's the thing. We are supposed to be people so firmly rooted in the Word of God that if we were to go to a church and hear something other than the Word of God being preached faithfully, that we would have a negative reaction to it. Imagine the Jews back in the day when they heard things and they would rip their clothes or they would throw ashes on their head and they would, they would scream blasphemy or heresy. or they, they, they would get very into that conversation because it was everything to them. Judaism wasn't a hobby, it was their life. And Christianity should be the same way. When we go and we hear people proclaim something that's not the truth of God, there should be a negative reaction. We should not accept that. So people that say that we should accept the ways of the world, that's divisive. You know, obviously, it's, it's very easy to turn that around and say, hey, you're the one that's hating. You're, 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 you're the one that, that won't you know, adapt to the times. You're the one that is trying to make people outcasts. No, friend, we're all outcasts. We are being brought in by Jesus Christ. That is what unifies us. Don't tell us that we have to accept other things because we don't. We are the accepted. Jesus accepted us. He overlooked our sin, forgave our sin. He accepted us. If you want to be a part of the church, you're going to have to go through Jesus. And He's going to set things right. So we don't accept the ways of the world. That is divisive talk. And it sounds, and the way that it's presented now, we are the divisive ones. If we insist on the Word of God, that's not true. That's not true. People telling us not to interpret the Bible literally, they're divisive. You look at some of the major passages in Scripture that deal with miracles. The literal way is to understand that God acted in a supernatural way in the natural world. Well, people don't want us to accept that anymore. They don't want us to believe that. That's, that's why they say Jesus was just a good moral teacher. Because they can't square with the fact that he controlled the weather, he raised the dead, and he himself died and came back to life. They can't deal with those things. And so they say he was a good teacher. Interpret the Bible literally. If you don't, you're divisive. People that tell us that the call of Christ is not a call to die is divisive. Why are Christians soft? Because we've been told we can be. If we would be strong, fearless Christians like the first century Christians had to be, then we would not be afraid of standing up to peer pressure. 
We would not be afraid to stand up to the, the, the government or to any other force that might tell us what to do. Remember when I said early on, a long time ago at this point, remember when I said early on, when we are an offering to God, we belong to Him, nobody can take us back, nobody can give us a contrary command. Whether that be our friends, whether that be our employer, whether that be our government, whether that be a soldier pointing a gun at your face and saying, deny Christ, the answer is no, because we are His. And we can never be removed from Him. We can never be commanded to do something that He has commanded us not to do. So we belong to Him. Now, I tell you, there are millions of people around the world that consider themselves Christians. They consider themselves to be part of the church, but they've been taken advantage of by these wolves in sheep's clothing, or better yet, wolves in shepherd's clothing. They're telling people that you can have Jesus and you can have life. You can have this and you can have all of that. When you read the gospel, it doesn't tell us what all we can have. We can have Jesus. can't have any of those other things. No, those other things are promised. We might have Jesus today and die tomorrow. We might have Jesus and be poor for the rest of our lives. We might have Jesus and be sick for the rest of our lives. But we have Jesus. We don't have to have all those other things. They're not promised. They're not promised. There's no place in the ministry for divisive actions. That doesn't mean standing on the Word of God. <laughs> there may be some things that have to be divided if we stand on the Word of God. The divisive ones are the ones that are leading us astray. And we have to be careful about that. So Paul goes on to say that those that are with him send their greetings. We have Timothy, um, Tertius. It's worth pointing out that Paul would have used somebody to write his letters, probably because of his vision. So if you see there, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord, that doesn't mean that everything up to this point just shatters and wait a minute, he's just not the writer. No, Paul probably couldn't see. Um, in one of his letters, he says, see what, see what large letters I'm writing, because he's writing it in his own hand. Because of what Paul had went through, probably when he wrote, it was large so that he could see it. So large print probably wasn't the neatest because he couldn't see to, to, to write the way that, that, that he maybe could have in his younger days. So he used somebody, so he probably dictated this to him. That doesn't shake or, 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 or make us doubt the letter. It's just the way that he had to do it. Um, so this great letter of the gospel ends exactly the way as it should. As Paul gives glory to God for all that has been done and all that is yet to come to pass. And so you see this doxology at the end starts with verse 25, now to him. Um, skipping down to verse 27, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Biblical ministry always leads to powerful worship. It always must. When we know the true God, we cannot help but worship him. And that's where Paul was at. So from this passage, we can see that Paul's entire life was spent fulfilling the calling that God had placed on his life. He spent his life like we spend money. We don't expect to get money back when we spend it, do we? We spend it, we give it away. That's how God looks at our lives, that we are spending our lives for him as currency. We are giving it away until the day that he brings us home. There was a tremendous amount of work, um, and he also faced regular threats to his life in his service to the Lord. Uh, you can read the passage where he lists all the things that he's went through from the scourging to the shipwrecks to the imprisonments. It's unbelievable what he went through. And yet he was never discouraged. He continued to go forward because he knew that God was with him. 
we can actually see that this kind of attitude was not unique to Paul. Uh, there are many other people named in this passage even that would have been just as faithful as Paul. They just simply had a different calling on their lives. The world of the New Testament does not recognize casual Christianity, weekend Christianity. It doesn't recognize that. And neither should the 21st century church. We are called to a full commitment. We must give our whole lives to the calling that God has placed in our lives. Whatever He's calling you to do. Now, I could go through a long list of all the things that God likely calls you to do, but I may never hit the nail on the head, but God is driving it home to you. Maybe even right now, He's telling you what you are to do. It may be within the church. It may be outside the church. It may be something that is completely personal to you. You don't have to tell us, but you do have to be faithful to do it. Whatever God's called you to do, spend your life doing that. Be fearless, be true, and in the end, give God all the glory. That is what ministry is all about. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time to gather together, and we definitely thank you for your word and the example of Paul in this letter because he was fearless he proclaimed your truth knowing that probably people would disagree with him. He was headed to a place where he knew he was going to run into trouble. But he was even looking past that to travel to the farthest reaches of the world that he knew of at that time. And we don't see a hint of hesitation in anything that he's doing. He trusted in you. He asked for the prayers of other believers. And he went without question. I pray that you would build that heart in each of us. I know that you already are. You have given us our mission. You have helped us to be prepared in every way possible. So now, Father, I pray that we can be unwavering in our resolve to do what you have commanded us to do. Make us faithful to the faithful one. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.